sleeper must awake. All right, second show of 2024, our first interview of 2024, uh, on this ninth episode of Hopscotch Chronicles. I am your host, Dominique Vallée. Happy that we're together once again uh, for uh, a great episode. I'm excited for that one. I was excited before we recorded it, and now it's recorded and I'm still excited. <laughs> so yeah, this week we're talking uh, psychology and uh, self-knowledge and all that cool stuff with Dr. Paul J. Leslie. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still getting used to the mic. Uh, thank you for uh, <laughs> for still being here, for uh, uh, keeping up with me as I learn the trade. Oh, by the way, uh, yeah, if if uh, you're very you're, you're not willing to listen to me ramble in these intros, uh, which I understand. Um, uh, if you look in the comments or show notes or whatever, like uh, timestamps, also. Uh, whether it's on YouTube or uh, your podcast app, you should see an interview beginning uh, timestamp. So if you want to skip there, I'll try to make it even more obvious because, uh, yeah, sometimes you come here, you just want to hear the guest. You don't want to hear my um, big fluffy face. And I understand that. I have no issues with that. So, yeah, um, last week's show was... Uh, something a bit special that I'm not gonna do so much um, but from time to time I'm gonna do a solo episode just like I did last week um, that one was on a very personal matter um, but also very important at large because it it, um, it addresses the connection between spirituality um, and art, which for me is, I mean, one goes with the other. There's, <laughs> there isn't really one without the other. I understand that's not the case for everyone, but, uh, uh, yeah, so I was talking about, um, my, um, experience going through uh, a grunge phase, <laughs> uh, earlier in life and how, uh, it affected me. Um, so yeah, check that out if you want. Uh, but what I want to say about that is, uh, that expect more interviews with artists. This is something that I, I, I want to do a bit different from other shows is that you want, well, when you have a show about mysticism, spirituality, philosophy, you usually have just people in those fields. But as I said, I think art is so uh, important for one's uh, spiritual development that it only makes sense that um, uh, I would try to uh, have those discussions with uh, musicians and, and maybe visual artists also. And it feels like they, they're not... Like, artists are not often asked like deeper questions about their spirituality so i'm always wondering like are they reticent to talk about it or is it just that 
Like it's not a very popular subject, so the questions just don't get asked. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna try to get some, um, yeah, some influential and uh, just general good artists that clearly have uh, a kind of a, a spiritual or maybe even some. Um, uh, esoteric uh, um, inclinations. So, anyways, look out for that. Uh, don't be surprised if you see a bunch of musicians um, behind, uh, between all the, the 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 philosophers and the PhDs. And uh, anyways, so you get the drift. Um, so, but for this episode, we're diving into psychology um and um yeah because uh, it feels sometimes that psych maybe it's more of a western thing i don't know uh sometimes the our psychological aspects get, get kind of left aside or when we're really really into uh um uh, yeah spiritual path if you may uh, because or it, it's not taken that seriously it's taken more on a an, just a emotional level on a very surface level but to really really deep uh, delve into our our um, psychology uh, even on an intellectual uh, in an intellectual way can help us can help some of us because we're all built on different sets of archetypes um, to yeah to go further and that's for sure that's the case for me um, that said uh, if it's only like an intellectual and mental thing it has its limits <laughs> and that's why I think um, Dr. Uh, Leslie is just an, the perfect person to talk to when it comes to psychology uh for the mystics although i i don't think he works uh in that way and wouldn't um <laughs> limit himself to the <laughs> to to have a mystic clientele but um his open-mindedness and also his the importance he puts on creativity uh within the uh therapeutical uh, process for me uh, as a person who's seen a lot of therapists in, in life of, of all kinds uh, I think this creativity aspect um, and adaptability aspect that Paul definitely has uh, it's mandatory to make true progress in um, uh, psychologically on our path so yeah anyways we I, i'm not gonna get into the details of how we met um but it was very quick it was a, a short time but instantly i felt like i'm gonna have fun talking with this guy for sure well i didn't know if he would want to come with the show on the show but i knew that uh just on a personal level like I was I was sure we'd get along well so and I think I was right. It feels like 
we had that connection and uh, yeah, it was a fun, engaging and inspiring talk. So uh, let me uh, read his bio, impressive bio. Uh, so Dr. Paul J. Leslie is a psychotherapist, researcher, trainer, and author in Aiken, South Carolina. Paul has a doctorate in counseling psychology as a national board certified fellow in hypnotherapy and is presently the coordinator of the psychology program at Aiken Technical College. He has authored nine books on such topics as transformative psychotherapy, healing and personal development. Paul is a popular trainer in the areas of solution-based therapies, Ericksonian hypnosis, and creative therapy applications. Here's that word again, creative. Creativity. <laughs> All right, so um, yeah, that's it. Let's uh, move on with the interview. Uh, I'll guess I'll remind, uh, remind you to like and subscribe. Uh, <laughs> if you're on um, YouTube and if you're on uh, audio, any, any kind of audio podcast application, you can also subscribe and leave comments and leave reviews. It helps. It really helps. And if you want to help me uh, do more of these shows uh, and get better at it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, please engage, leave your comments and uh, all the good stuff. All right. So, yeah, here we go with the interview. <laughs> Dr. Paul J. Leslie, <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Uh, we've met uh, in uh, unusual circumstances. In a, uh, I'm not going to go into details, but uh, on a online New Year's party, and uh, I was so glad to to have this occasion to uh, speak with you and yeah, like just connect through this. And uh, so here we are. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well, thank you, and uh, thank you for asking me to uh, to do this interview. I, I've been looking forward to it. Cool, cool. Yeah, as, as we were saying um, before we started recording, it's going to be, uh, I don't know how unusual it's going to be for you, but uh, from what I've seen of the of interviews that you've done in the past, uh, like it's um, kind of the client interviewing the therapist, because <laughs> I've been seeing many therapists uh towards the course of my life from a very young age uh as i said some uh, unfortunate uh encounters and one that were very very important for me so uh yeah we're gonna get in that like this all this uh psychotherapy stuff but we're gonna push it a bit uh and as it's going to be fun. No worries. Uh, anyone <laughs> and you. <laughs> so I've 
It's, I don't know if you've uh, seen the past episodes or, or just uh, uh, glanced at them, but I've, I've interviewed magicians. Uh, and I've asked them uh, what kind of magicians that they are, you know. So I guess a good way to start would be to ask you what kind of magician, oh, I'm sorry, uh, what kind of uh, therapist you are. Uh, I've seen you mention Ericksonian therapy, uh, which I don't know. I've right. as much uh, experience I've had in uh, therapy. I've never heard of that before. So yeah, what what kind of th psychotherapist are you? <laughs> uh, hopefully, an effective one. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I would say uh, I my goal as a therapist, the kind of therapist I am, is to be what the person in front of me needs me to be in that moment. And that will change depending on the person who's in front of me. Some people need encouragement. Some people need confrontation. Some people need support. Some people need laughter. Some people need uh, attachment. Some people need detachment. I mean, it just kind of goes down to what is that person needing? What resource would, you know, access to some inner strength and how do I facilitate them accessing that? And it could take the form of whatever ethical action uh, needs to happen in the moment. It could be very subtle things as in just sitting and being present and uh, telling them, I'm so sorry to hear that you've gone through this. Or it could be something very uh, active, creative to where we're doing uh, certain tasks, doing certain therapeutic rituals, uh, in some uh, uh, times I've, I've had a client's uh, dance. I've had uh, scavenger hunts in the office. Uh, I've had all kinds of different things, whatever's needed to create the conditions for change to emerge because everyone uh, has the ability to transform their life on some level. And my goal is not so much to be the, use the term magician, uh, to be the magician that, that creates this, but to facilitate for this change to come about. Because in the end, it's the client who's the one who's changing themselves. And I think any good magician, I'm assuming you're, you're meaning uh, like the, the occult magicians rather than the David Copperfield, uh, David Blaine uh, <laughs> magicians, any good uh, uh, more occult uh, magician will talk about also how self-change is an important part of their process. So uh, to answer your question, that's, you know, what I try to be, uh, an informed, a caring, a compassionate, but ultimately I, I strive to be a creative therapist. Uh, I wish I met you when I, I was uh, 12. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, kind of. Uh, but the way, just the way you're, you're speaking, uh, and just how you didn't necessarily <clears throat> describe yourself using just a specific, uh, school of thought, you know, mm. uh, to me is already very inspiring. Uh, and I hope, uh, to see more and more, uh, therapists, psychotherapists are going to be needed more and more in the fall, in the next few years i i believe um who have this ability to be creative and uh just as an aside because we we've exchanged a, a bunch of emails and you were mentioning that you've done a lot of uh, martial arts 
and um, I see kind of a relation there, like um, just adapting to the flow of energy that's there, responding to the situation accordingly to either empower or, uh, um, yeah, uh, anyways, you, you know what I'm, where I'm going. Right. Um, there's already so much uh, where we could go. Uh, is that, is it a, a good idea to, to uh, quickly mention uh, Ericksonian therapy? Oh, sure, sure. Or is it is it very like uh, uh, at the center of your of your uh, practice enough to put a point on it? Well, sure. Yeah, uh, Ericksonian therapy is a, a therapy concept, if you will, uh, modeled after the late American psychiatrist and uh, medical hypnotist uh, Milton H. Erickson. Erickson was a a, a wild uh, thinker. Uh, some people have even uh, thought he was like an American uh, shaman in that he would create these incredible shifts in people in the most odd, unexpected, and paradoxical uh, ways. Um, Erickson, in early in his life, when he was about 17, 18 years old, he contracted uh, polio, which uh, just devastated his body. But he found that... Um, He had uh, the ability to use his imagination and his creativity to uh, essentially heal himself well enough to uh, you know, finish school, go to college, become a medical doctor. And while he was in uh, college, he uh, studied uh, clinical hypnosis. And what he found was that many ideas he had about how people change really could be... Um, created even more effectively utilizing hypnosis. But what Erickson did, which was different than other hypnotists or hypnotherapists, is that he took a, a different approach in that he never was directive. And what I mean is a lot of the old hypnotists would come to someone who says, you're feeling very sleepy. Your eyes are getting very heavy. Mm -hmm. You will be doing this thing that I'm telling you to do. So it, it was almost like an authoritarian Uh, state, which is one reason why hip, a lot of the early hypnosis research, there's a lot of hit and miss. Some people were very susceptible who were more open to someone telling them what to do, whereas others might not have been. Where Erickson found that just by talking to people in an indirect manner, he could create shifts in the way they saw themselves, they saw their situations. He could uh, help get them to do certain actions that would interrupt um, problematic patterns of behavior they had. And it was a way that was much more um, inclusive in that it didn't take a dictator role in uh, the relationship. Whereas a traditional hypnotist would say, your eyes you'll notice your eyes are becoming very heavy. So they're stating as a fact, this is what you'll notice. Whereas Erickson would say, you may notice your eyes are heavy or not. Mm. Either way is fine because they're your eyes and they can close as quickly or as slowly as you want them to close now. Now it's a whole different approach, meaning that we're going to take in the bulk of that person's experience. Maybe their eyes are heavy, maybe their eyes aren't. And that's okay because whatever they're giving the therapist or the hypnotist, 
that person's going to utilize. That's a big thing from Erickson was utilizing what uh, patients and clients give you rather than trying to force them into some kind of predetermined way of being in the world. So uh, we kind of look at this as a very strategic way of working and that the Erickson devised strategies on how to rather than be a you know headbutting and, and forcing and trying to win, he would use whatever the client is doing and get them to do something just slightly different that would activate their own inner healing which would then create shifts for them in their daily lives. Sometimes the things he's done uh, when you read some of the cases are pretty out there, pretty strange and they might not make sense initially. But then when you realize that he was trying to uh, create a, a new way of, of experience for the client, because what we found, I think now is that people sometimes think that therapy or good therapy is about information, meaning, oh, here's your problem. Let me mm -hmm. tell you where, where your problem came from and what your problem is. But what we found is any real, to me, generative change has to utilize the idea of an experience. An experience will create so much more profound change than insight or information. I can give you all the reasons why you shouldn't touch a hot stove. It only takes you one time to touch a hot stove to figure it out that, you know, we don't have to have this conversation again, you know. Uh, so I, I think that that's it. The creation of new experiences, of different experiences. And, and going back to kind of what uh, you asked me earlier, what kind of therapist am I? Maybe that's part of creating an experience that that person needs in the moment to help them kind of find their own uh, way and whatever that way is. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Ericksonian is a, is a big bulk of, of how I, I, I work, but I don't want to be tied uh, to it because in the end, it's just another a name, uh, you know, another uh, concept that, and there are many wonderful concepts that work really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, Cause it seems to me like uh, from an ev evolutional or even a spiritual or just conscious uh, evolution standpoint, uh, it's not so straightforward. Like, um, Oh, I should be some something very specific and stop being this because um, for me, my my experience uh, tells me that all those <laughs> crappy things that I've gone through that uh, if I if someone would ask me, you know, like should you go? Should, uh, do you want to do that? I would say, well, no, it's not going to be fun, you know. But uh, all that to say that uh, this. Um, creative uh, mindset uh, allows um, maybe a truer uh, is is that a word? What is today? <laughs> a more actual evolution. It is. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, it allows a more natural um, evolution in the person because without controlling it too much in a mental way it allows something natural to come out and i guess uh, I, i've heard you mention uh uh in the uh, intuition and creativity a lot in your interviews and in your books mm -hmm. um and this gives uh it gives the opportunity for 
yeah, like I'm going to call it divine randomness or natural randomness to do its work rather than just controlling it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if yeah. you have any thoughts on that. Well, it's it's like the uh, the great uh, philosopher Mike Tyson is often quoted by saying that uh, every everybody's got a plan until they get hit. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. a funny saying, but it, it's absolutely true. If I plan to interact in a certain specific way, there's also a high likelihood that that won't happen. So if I say, <clears throat> excuse me, if I say I have a client who uh, I think will benefit from this type of technique. And then I try to force that technique and keep forcing it, even if it's not working. Well, it's real easy for me to say, well, it's just the clients being resistant or, you know, they just haven't gotten the message yet, rather than realizing that sometimes that technique might not work with that person because I've gotten so married to a plan that I don't know when to throw away that plan and come up with a new plan. And I, I keep kind of, uh, as the metaphor, beating a, a dead horse, you know, keep hoping it's going to get up and run. And I think when we, just in general, when we try to uh, structure too much of our daily interactions with people with so much rigid outcomes, uh, we're always going to be incredibly uh, disappointed. I remember I read somewhere someone said something about that. Uh, uh, disappointment is the result of adequate planning, uh, meaning that the, the more you plan for a specific thing that always just this way, oftentimes life will uh, surprise you. Um, there is a an element of interacting with people, particularly whether you're a therapist, whether you're a coach, whether you're a healer, whether you're a, uh, a teacher, that if you don't open up the possibility of uh, kind of a free flow of information that sometimes will go on a, on a certain direction, start drifting, that, you know, that sometimes those drifts, those changes in direction open new doorways to new experiences, which will go back to what I said earlier. If we're so rigid trying to create experience A, and yet we're going, somehow we're going to experience B and C, how do we know that B and C and D and E aren't going to be beneficial? Uh, It's, there's a something in in Western culture, and I'm overgeneralizing here, that we just want to just control the heck out of everything. We want to control our social interactions, we want to control our governments, we want to control people, our family members, and it's all based on this idea of kind of a a rigid control. And I don't mean that that means not having good boundaries. I think good boundaries and structure are essential to any system. But then when the system has a slight shift, if the parameters of that system are so rigid, immediate chaos uh, will ensue. And instead of having that flexibility to kind of guide and and move, much like the willow tree, when the wind, they have the ability to flow, we will uh, become rigid, rigid with our family, rigid with our clients, our patients, our, our coworkers, our life in general. Uh, so, yes, intuition, allowing what you are feeling to emerge, if you feel it strong enough to kind of allow it in a, in a, in a um, ethical, cooperative, creative way in a therapy setting, but just in general, accessing that, that, that idea of not knowing, you know, but yet having an inner knowing about not knowing. It's a bit of a, a, a paradox. But when we free up that space to allow things to emerge, even if we're not so sure what they are, we certainly open this 
the door to more creative responses. We open up the door to more shifts in context of how we view situations. And, and most importantly, we open up the door to the mysterious. And the mysterious is often where new ideas come from. Uh, I remember uh, reading um, someone who said that most of psychotherapy and coaching and things like that is fairly boring because so many people are spending time only working in parameters in which there's no mystery. It's the trying to stick to, you know, things they know. Now, some things you, you want you know, if I go to my doctor with a broken arm and she or he's, uh, well, I know we've always tried it this way and it's worked. So let's just try something different. Maybe I need them to stick to what works with a broken arm, right? But with a con mm -hmm. conversational consciousness, awareness, shifting, too much rigidity will often stunt any type of, in my opinion, psychological growth, self-actualization process, all those kind of things. So the more that I have, here's the paradox, have a base and a structure, but allow myself some room to flow, then the more effective I can be, not just in my in my daily work or whatever I'm doing, but just in life in, in general. If, if I'm a artist and I see something so firmly in my head, like I'm painting a portrait of someone, I get it. It has to, to be a good painting. It has to look like that person. Okay. But then uh, Picasso created a whole world based on nothing looking like the person. And it was magical. It was, you know, so, you know, th this is, is, is where the, the trick lies. You know, wh where do you go uh, with those kind of uh, paradigms and parameters? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you know, but I've uh, I've I've written a book uh, published earlier this year, um, and it's about uh, what I've called the mystical path of self knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say mystical, I don't mean occult. That's uh, very different. And so far, what you've told me is very mystical because mm -hmm. it it has to to do with embracing, uh, yeah, the unknown basically, um, and the more unknown. We embrace the more remains. But anyways, that's another <laughs> another topic. Uh, but I'm interested in and it's paradoxical in a way because um, self-knowledge, you know, uh, to me, true self-knowledge really appears in that setting when we're completely open to not knowing. So um I'm wondering how and I'm guessing you're going to you're going to answer it's different for every therapist but what place does uh, self-knowledge has in um psychotherapy because and it seems obvious like for sure I'm going to I'm going to therapy to know myself better but it's not that obvious because um uh, some will have uh, some therapists uh, have kind of a more more of a medicinal approach, medicine as in uh, allopathic medicine, uh, as uh, you know. If I go to to take your your example of if I have a broken arm, like they're not going to tell me, you know, your arm works that way, and this is how you, you know, like it's not or encourage me to 
experiment with my arm, you know, to know it. So it it starts from the basis that they know better what my my body is than me, you know, which is in some ways it's true for sure. I'm not denying that. Um, but in therapy, in the psychotherapy, you know, like how does that work exactly? And if there is a place for self-knowledge in therapy, um, I hope that's that might be a doozy. Okay, <laughs> no, to totally fine. Um, the idea of a medicalized view of therapy has been around for many years, and what 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 I think that has ruined us in some ways uh, because we are, have become now slaves to uh, diagnostic criteria and and only specific ways of interacting on that. So uh, years ago, when uh, we were trying to, the, the field was trying to get uh, therapy covered by insurance. Well, now there's a shift to, well, we have to be more like medicine and because that's insurance yeah. is health care. So this is health care and, and all that. And I think the intentions were, were, were good there. But you kind of you know, uh, make a deal with the devil with a lot of insurance companies is now you got to diagnose people and you have to treat them according to this diagnosis. And I'm not saying that that can't be effective. Uh, you only see them a certain amount of time. You can only do certain things. And uh, looking as at people, not as um, a, an alive system within systems, but it's like a, a linear individual, oh, you have anxiety. So anxiety is this. So we're just going to do that, you know. So it's a very limited mm -hmm. problem. A gets solution A, you know, kind of things. Doesn't mean that it, it can't be effective. But a lot of times what this has done is to eradicate the uh, the uh, push for self-knowledge based on the part of the therapist, on the client. When I think about therapy, I have I asserted in one of my books that uh, essentially that therapy is based on the construction of themes between the client and the therapist. So if you have depression, metaphorically, you have depression and you go to a therapist and you tell the therapist, oh, I have depression. So if the therapist accepts that definition, that theme of Dominic is uh, depressed, you know, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing, but now you're creating a context in which you both have to interact. So if somebody's depressed, what mm -hmm. do most of the time we do? We try to do things that counteract the depression. Now, if somebody comes in uh, like yourself and says, I'm depressed, and within uh, 10 minutes, the therapist goes, hey, wait, I don't think you're depressed. I think you're going through the artist's journey because you may notice when you're really creative sometimes you get really excited yeah. and, all that. and when you're in a place where you're not able to be creative sometimes it can feel like this depression so maybe it's just that you don't have mm -hmm. enough creativity you're not working on a project you know you're, you're not uh, uh, interacting with people who are creative now that mm -hmm. that kind of way of thinking about it can work in either scenario but the rigid frame of client is depressed is different than going through a the artist journey the struggle of the, of the artist you know it takes on a more if 
dare I say, a mythic theme, like the hero's journey of, of Campbell and, and people like that. So you don't usually look up the diagnostic and statistical manual that's the criteria for diagnosing in, in my field and look up artist healing journey because it doesn't exist. So the <laughs> therapist and the client are co-creating, not in that second scenario, not just what's happening in the moment, but the context in which it happens. So the th- Theme A is I'm really badly depressed. Theme B is I'm in the middle of a artist healing journey. It's two different ways to see essentially the same thing. One is very medicalized. Mm-hmm. Now you got to go to the doctor. Got to get your you know uh, your uh, cocktail of serotonin, you know reuptake inhibitors, etc. You know, and again, nothing wrong with that. I mean, that can work. I've seen that work for a lot of people and that's helpful. Or you got to do your intensive cognitive behavioral therapy where you, you know, get into your brain and try to uh, spot all these irrational thoughts that are creating your depression. Far be over here for that particular individual, because it is based on a particular individual, is a new theme of, hey, you're an artist, you're creative. Let's find new ways to be creative, because that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with you. You're just, you're blocked from your creativity. So let's do some things that allow that creativity to flow. So self-knowledge is the ability to, like you say, to allow that unknown to come forth. And instead of seeing, thinking you got it figured all out, because just because your client says they're depressed or anxious doesn't mean that you have to accept their theme. Or if you do accept their theme, then you can maybe transform the theme of therapy. So rather than every session of a therapy, depressed, 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 depressed. I get depressed thinking about that many therapy sessions where I'm, you know, but, you know, (laughs) looking at the theme of, of what's going on in that person's life. What resource do they need? What strength haven't they activated? What creative new thing experience can they, can they come up with uh, to shift their somatic feelings? A lot different than, okay, well, here's the, the standard evidence-based treatment and we got to do the diagnostics and, and, and all of that. Again, mm-hmm. it, the, you know, the whole field can be very effective but I think it's also if it gets too medicalized, then it can be very rigid. Now, there are some yeah. um, people throughout the history of, of the field who were very creative, like Carl Jung, who I think him less as a psychiatrist and more as a mystic and more of a hermetic philosopher. And so he's investigating yeah. and, and trying to work with people with all these really creative ways. And he's quoted one time as saying, thank God I'm not a Jungian. And he's like, but you're Carl Jung. And he's like, because he didn't want to get even his own ideas, didn't want to get rigid and stuck in this theme that everyone has to enter into. And if they don't occupy the theme the way the therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, doctor, whoever thinks they should, then there's something wrong with the the client. Whereas it maybe the theme Mm -hmm. is is not a good thing for the person. So if I see someone yeah. and I think their problem is a chemical imbalance, I've created a thing. If I think their problem is uh, problems in their thinking, like cognitive distortions, I've created a thing. If I think it's because their uh, childhood uh, issues with their cold, unfeeling mother, I've created a thing. Because you know what? We can find that for most of this, there's no clear cut 100% evidence that A equals B. We're creating themes mm-hmm. to work out of. 
And if we get too rigid on a theme as I know it's got to be your childhood or I know it's got to be your chemicals or I know, then we lock out the possibility of any other information getting in or even discussed. So then it were locked mm-hmm. inside a frame of, of just this theme and you get more of the same, you know, uh, as uh, yeah. one of my mentors said, you can never have enough of what you don't want. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love all those quotes. You're, you're the best at that. Oh. They're so funny. <laughs> I have a quote because I, 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 it makes me think of this. Uh, it's a famous uh, Krishnamurti quote, which although the way we know it, it, it's apparently not exactly what he was saying, but it's basically that uh, uh, to be well, you've heard it and everyone's heard it to be well adjusted to a sick society is not uh, a measure of... Uh, health or whatever you want. Right. I don't know how it was exactly, but uh, so to create those themes you were talking about, you need to have a model of what an, uh, uh, what the self, uh, I was going to say, is, but also what it should be, basically. So there's no freedom to, 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 you know, to, so, and, and to, to um, to determine what this self should act like and should like w- what makes it normal and functioning, you know, and I don't know, like for me, like it's pretty obvious that if you look out there and in those machines, it's not going so well, you know, so like adjusting to that, really, that's what you want, you know, mm-hmm. so it has to be. Um, a challenge for the therapist to to uh i mean i mean, just imagine if i if i had to make such decisions you know like to build those themes like mm-hmm. uh, yeah you gotta be a bit of a mystic to to allow it to, to just come out of the person like what th- it's it's in the client i guess um mm-hmm what their the their best the best version of them can be it's in there it's not in in here in my head i guess right yeah so yeah just asking your your client whether you're again whether you're a therapist you're a coach whether or whatever you know what do they want it's like okay mm-hmm. i want to be happy okay so define what that is yeah. you know and then how, why do you want that you know, it's, so get, getting through these layers, because a lot of times what people think they want, they really don't want. It's some socially constructed yeah. nonsense. But a lot of times what they want is really what they do want. And they've kind of blocked themselves or things in life have happened that kind of keep them from constructing life uh, the way they think it is. You know, reality, there's two, two ways to view reality for me. There's one that's called fundamental reality. Now, fundamental reality are things like gravity. Now, if I take a pin and I drop it, no matter how many times I drop it, that's going to happen, at least in this world that we're living in. That's fundamental reality. We can argue over how fast it drops, you know, what kind of pin I'm using to drop every time. But if we intellectually are honest, no one can say uh, that, Gravity doesn't exist because it's going to happen every time. I can't uh, have any information or facts to know that 
what I'm feeling when I'm dropping the pen. I only know what I'm feeling. If you drop the pen, I can't mm-hmm. know for sure what you're feeling. You can tell me, but I, I don't know if you're really being honest with me. Maybe the way you're viewing, the way the, the pen does, you create a story in your head about pens and I don't know. And then we construct a reality about the process. So fundamental, uh, the fundamental world we live in, I think for most people, that's not open to a lot of debate. But this idea that we're constructing reality, and what I mean is our perception of reality, the way we, the, the context that we view our lives is a construction of what's, uh, what we have come up with based on patterns of interaction we've done previously. I mean, you look at it this way. you got you know, one person who's uh, had a really horrible childhood, grew up with a lot of abuse, neglect, and everything like that, and then they are 30 years old. And they say, I've had a horrible childhood, and that means, and then you fill in the blank. And, you know, person A who went through this horrible thing may say, I've had a horrible childhood, and that means I'll never trust people. I've had a horrible childhood, and that means I'm going to probably be bad to my kids. I've had a horrible childhood, and that means I'm always going to be afraid. I've had a horrible childhood, and that means I can't handle life. And then you got person B who's had a horrible childhood, and they said, I've had a horrible childhood, and that means that I know I'm stronger. I live through it. I can do a lot of things. Uh, I know how not to treat people. You know, I know that going through that gave me insight so that I'm going to treat my family even better. You know, so it, it, it's not the, the part, the fundamental reality is both of these people, they had a horrible childhood, right? They're abused, neglected, or either, but the part of the sentence, and that means, fill in the blank, whatever that means, that's a constructed reality. The problem is that we forget that there's a construct. We think both of those, I had a horrible childhood, fundamental, and that means, and we think that's fundamental instead of that we've also kind of constructed a way of seeing that fundamental. And then we start to live our lives as if the construction that we did to create this context for our lives is, is a real thing. And mm-hmm. only when we step back and say, hey, do I really know what I know? You know, exactly. question our own epistemology about our own lives and go, wow, you know, just because uh, my... Uh, wife uh, ran off with the pool boy and left me. Maybe, maybe I'm not a horrible person like I have been living my life the last five years about. Or maybe I am. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But just to, to that ability to step back and look at that greater um, uh, meaning that we've assigned this this reality that we construct about how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about the world, and that's why a lot of times we do want to talk to therapists or coaches or preachers or teachers because they 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 can sit back because it's not their life and go hey this part here I don't think that's that's always true have you considered that it mm-hmm. may be something else it's we make a distinction about the world and when we make a distinction we assume that the distinction we made is a reality but we've just constructed that and the way a lot of times when you go and you talk to somebody, they just make a new distinction. You know, hey, guess what? Uh, your wife just may have been a, a, a real horrible person and just likes pool boys and ran on. I don't have anything to do with you. Or maybe she's crazy or or uh, maybe the, the marriage was on its way out and she gave you the opportunity to to get out by her action. And maybe she should be uh, appreciated more than you know hated or, you know, all this. whatever the distinction is or the redistinction. But 
in order for us to make a distinction, we have to start with this premise that this is not that. So mm-hmm. we say this and not this. And then we've, we've created a, a dividing line between two things, not realizing that we're the ones who's creating that. There is no, you know, dividing uh, separation, if you will. It's, it's we're the ones who's creating that. And you used this word uh, earlier. You said how we should be. And that should okay. is the term should is a is a wonderful uh, term to let us know that society and culture, whoever uh, wants us to do something different than what we want to do. You know, because when you say he should have done this, she should have done that. It's like we've already mm-hmm. had this, like, say, this predestined way of how we think people uh, need to be living their life. And when they don't, somehow they fail or they haven't, as opposed to looking at that as in, well, was it uh, the teacher um, Byron Katie says, if it should have been, it would have been. And looking at not at, 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 you know, this constructed reality in the world of shoulds, but hey, just get back to the fundamental. What happened? What happened? And focus on the mm-hmm. fundamental reality of what happened and then realize that you have the ability like a mind magician, if I can throw that term out, to say, okay, how do I want to feel about this? How do I want to view this differently? Uh, am I viewing this and, and, and making a distinction about these things based on what's really happening or based on my conditioning, uh, how I was brought up, where I live, my culture, uh, God forbid, the, the media, you know, all these other sources that daily are trying to, to get in our heads to make us feel like we're, we're just a bunch of monkeys and need to buy more things to be happy and, you know, run ourselves into debt and, and then feel so unfulfilled that you got to pick up the phone and call someone like me, you, you know? So um, a yeah. little bit of a long-winded uh, uh, tirade there, but it was it, it is, it comes down to, if you're looking at, at these things, we forget that we're simultaneously experiencing the very thing that we're creating as we're doing it. We're also creating. Mm -hmm. Well, you've mentioned something that's to me, that's the, the crux of, uh, uh, of mysticism. And I want to make clear, I think I've said it again. Uh, I've I've said it before, but mysticism to me is not occultism at all. Mm -hmm. And all you've mentioned to me is, um, required for an effective i'm using quotes here because that's a strange word but for an an effective uh walking of this mystical path this ability that you've mentioned of stepping back and looking at things (laughs) kind of in a discontrolled dissociative way like okay this dude there called dominic has been going through this and now he feels that and but what does he truly believe you know and that's kind of my thing you know because well i said uh mysticism doesn't mean occultism but sometimes it does because you know like just uh the interest of uh and even you've been interested at least as a spectator or (laughs) if i if i see the books you've written but uh and something that's related to, well, it's pretty popular, so I don't know if I should put it in uh, occultism, but uh, this idea of the, the law of attraction and how people want to create things in their lives, you know, with uh, some 
Well, there's, I think there's some truth to that, and it comes with the placebo effect, and maybe there's some metaphysical interactions also, I don't know. But still, how do you even know what you want to create? Like, most people don't know themselves, right. truly, right. you know? So, how, why would you, like, it's kind of a... Yeah, wanting to uh, go for a drive without knowing how to drive, you know, basically. Right, right. Um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, I don't know. And you, we, we, if you're driving too, go ahead. If you already know how to drive, sometimes it's nice to just kind of ramble around and see what's out there and not know where you're going. But at the same time, if you did that every day when you needed to go to work, uh, <laughs> hey, it's nine o'clock. I'm supposed to be at the office. How did I end up in Denver? You know. <laughs> Kind of, kind of a yeah. recipe for uh, for uh, failure on some level, you know. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that brings me to another question I had uh, concerning uh, pain, because you mentioned depression and all like anxiety, and there's all they're all in a way for forms of pain. And um, I was asking because I have uh, some friends who are in, um, uh, or more in a, uh, like f they're physical therapists. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I, my first language is French. So by the way, th that's why sometimes yeah. just okay, okay. cool. <laughs> um, and I asked them. I have an osteopath friend. I have a friend who's a personal trainer. How do you know the difference with a, um, between pain that's kind of normal because it's part of the transformation and pain that is actually, I was going to say destructive, but pain is always destructive. Yeah. Although sometimes it's just a, a cycle of destruction and sometimes it's uh, just to, to grow something a bit <laughs> bigger and more uh, evolved. Uh, so how can one, before they go and call you, you know, distinguish between the kind of pain that's, it, it's basically, it's just normal. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a tricky question. I don't know if, because uh, even my friends who were, uh, who are in, Uh, more physical uh, stuff. Uh, they didn't really know how to answer, you know, like, how can you tell? Mm -hmm. How am I, you know? Right. I, I usually answer a question uh, like this, at least for me in my field, because I won't speak to the, you know, physical therapy or the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the more physical uh, healing arts, but I call it the three D's. For someone to really mm. know that, that it's too much, there's got to be generally a high level of distress, daily distress. That's our first D. The second D is dysfunction, meaning that they, the things that they normally would have no trouble doing, they're not able to function. Right? And the third D is deviance, and not deviant with a T. Deviance is in like a statistical uh, measurement. So if you're so far out of the norm, of your norm, that uh, mm -hmm. it's it kind of adding to that distress and the deviance, um, then 
you know, that's something that you may want to look at. So, for example, um, laying in bed. We all hopefully get to lay, lie in bed, um, you know, for several hours a day, you know, because we need that. But now if it's two days and you haven't gotten out of bed, that's so out of the norm that it's obviously going to be causing dysfunction with going to work and distress, you know, and then there's a whole bunch of physiological things from not moving. So for me, the three areas is a distress, dysfunction, and deviance. Um, And if that person is experiencing all three of those, then, you know, it's definitely, I would call that a painful experience because we're all going to have distress we're all going to have some level of dysfunction here and there, and, and we're going to do things sometimes that are out of the norm, our, our individual norm. And mm-hmm. But if it's consistent enough, all working together, then that's usually a sign you, you, you may want to you know, get some help in whatever venue, avenue that you, you feel that that's appropriate uh, for you. For some people, it may be I go to my doctor and ask about medication. For others, it's I need to go talk to a shrink. Others, it may be I go talk to my rabbi or my priest or, uh, you know, you know, whoever, preacher, you know, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, but that, that's how, how I would uh, define it. Now, I want to circle back, if it's okay, about to the quote, we're talking about Krishnamurti and about how the, the our society and, and culture trying to adjust to that. Yeah. Well, that's that's some issues because you think about in our culture, Western culture, how things are changing so rapidly. I mean, my goodness, I, I really read something the other day that several just words that we use in in, in daily life suddenly uh, they're not acceptable anymore, and just like at the drop of a hat. Well, that's a lot to keep up with, mm-hmm. you know. So if you're if you're trying, okay, the language is changing so quick, technology is changing so quick. If you're having trouble acclimating to a culture, society that's moving so fast, coming up with so many new rules, so many new ideas, so many things, it's no wonder that people are feeling depressed and anxious in general, or your culture is focused on obtaining more things. That's the primary focus. You're not a success unless you live in a 10,000 square foot uh, building with, uh, you know, 15 cars and your, your net worth's uh, $10 million, you know, that that kind of thing. That all sounds nice, particularly the, the, the $10 million, mm-hmm. you know, that all sounds nice and nothing wrong with that. But when that becomes kind of the, the mental template that you take on and at heart, you're a poet who's okay living like Thoreau in a cabin in the woods. And now you beat yourself up because you're distressed because I should be further along doing, here's that should again, doing things that uh, mm-hmm. other people are doing that can lead to distress and, 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 uh, dysfunction and some deviance Mm -hmm. from the norm. So I I think we need to be clear on what's our personal thing we're we're dealing with and what is the environment creating? What's our culture and society uh, creating? Mm -hmm. I mean, my brother told me the other day about, he's watched some video with some guy who, who was up lecturing young men about money. And he says, if you're not a man, unless you're making at least $400,000 a year, and strutting around on the stage. And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay. All right. You know, that's the way, but if those are the messages that you buy into, you know, no wonder you feel horrible about yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, again, I don't want to sound like I'm on a soapbox, but I think we need to be aware of what's happening in our world. How does that affect us? Not just the, the wars and the 
nonsense politics. Those are always going to be there, by the way. If you look throughout history, we're always going to have those. But how do those things affect me personally? Are these cultural, social ideas that I want to take on? Uh, I mean, me personally, I'm kind of trying to live a more uh, simple life. Everybody, a lot of people want to live a big, I'm actually trying to live a, a smaller life just because it brings me more contentment, more happiness. And my God, is it easier to manage? So yeah. um, when we're saying what's pain, it's like, is pain an outside coming in or an inside coming out? Or is there just a loop that continues to flow through until people learn to think differently act differently that's in accordance to their highest values, their highest priorities. I'll tell you, my friend, mm-hmm. that people could just get in touch with what's really, truly important to them and be clear on yeah. that. A lot of this stuff would go away. People would stop working jobs they hate. So they'd stop being in relationships that drain them. They'd stop um, getting involved in the drama of celebrity and politics. They'd start trying to figure out what's really important to me. So if what's important to mm-hmm. me, hypothetically, is making pottery. Uh, that's something that I really value. Then I'm not going to try mm-hmm. to go put on uh, a suit and go be a hedge fund manager. I'm just going to have to find a, a way to get through to where I can do my pottery. And hopefully success comes out, but I'm, I'm happier. You know, so mm-hmm. some people's highest value, highest priority in life is taking care and raising their children. So rather than trying to society force them out into the workplace to do these kind of things to where they're never home because they're doing it for the good of the kids. You know, uh, it'd say it's maybe you just need to be a stay at home mom, a stay at home dad. And maybe your partner likes doing something else. And they were, you know, it's trying to not live beyond your means, trying to just you know, create, here goes back to the whole thing, constructing reality, creating your daily reality that matches who you really are in your highest priority, your highest value in life. And I I think so many people are just disconnected uh, uh, from it. I mean, if if your your highest ideal for yourself does not match what society tells you, it is a struggle. And and in in some cases, it can lead to a pathological way of feeling. And that's... uh, that's tough. Yeah. Clearly. Um, and that, that notion of, of success for me I, actually was very central to uh, finding my, um, my inner stability. <laughs> Although I, I like to remain flexible. But, uh, and like really, really wrestling with that idea. What, what is success to me? And uh, the 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 answers I found, like whenever I tell people, most like they really that's it, like that's what drives you. Like to me, it's integrity, and that's it. That's just it. Just trying to do. Ah, I wish I had some grandiose way of saying it, but just try to do the best that you can. Just focus on that and what feels uh, right and natural. It's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's why like, I use this term, mysticism, but I, I, uh, I see it around me in, in very um, um, normal, uh, in normal people. You know, like, as you said, like, uh, for some people, just being at home and raising their kids. I've seen that when I was doing jobs that I personally didn't like. I saw people 
that, that we're okay with doing that because to them the 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 most meaningful thing in their lives was at home which is their their kids and their wives or or husbands or partners you know mm-hmm. and that's the deepest most truest experience for them and that's what gives them you know like uh, a natural energy for doing things in life you know mm-hmm. uh i needed different things you know but it's uh, anyway so but it, it brings me to um oh sorry maybe you had a yeah i was just going to say you know it comes down to this idea of people kind of an unfolding you know the uh, the uh, Jungian uh, psychologist uh, the late James Hillman wrote a book I think um, which I can remember the uh, the title of it but he uh, attributed each of us to have having an acorn and that acorn you know develops into a tree but the acorn that we're having a lot of times we don't water it we don't care for it because somehow we think that we should be doing something else or being someone else. And so that's where a lot of the internal struggles come in to where, hey, I just I just want to go um, go ride horses and work on a ranch. And, you know, there might not be a lot of, uh, you know, big uh, uh, fame and fortune in it. And so, but, you know, my dad will think I'm a, I haven't, you know, measured up to think, you know, all these uh, things we think in our head. And so instead of going out and riding horses on a ranch where I can live a very productive, happy life, I go, like I say, be the hedge fund manager or go become a lawyer or an accountant. And you know what? There's plenty of people whose acorn is an accountant, is a hedge fund manager, is an attorney. So let those acorns open and your acorn about riding horses on a ranch, that needs to open. It's like somehow uh, we measure uh our, our lives based on our income, based on the job title. I mean, crying out loud, when I started college back in the dark ages, uh, it was, uh, there was some, uh, yeah, you, you, you get, a, you get a, a degree and you go and you, and you get work, but there was some element of learning, of becoming a well-rounded person, a scholar, and then you go and you use, you know, for whatever you want to do. Now it's about, well, don't get that English literature uh, degree because you, you're not going to be able to get a good job with that. So it's shifted Mm. from being educated now in a lot of ways to being trained. So go to positions, even though that's not your acorn, to where you can support yourself and your family. And I get it. I get it with the the, the realities of economics. But at the same time, if somewhere that acorn isn't being cared for, uh, it's going to rot and die taking you with it. So if you decide, yeah, I'm okay, I, you know, I can do accounting, it's not my passion, I love English literature, well, go be the accountant. But then in your part-time, go teach uh, English uh, you know, at the college as an adjunct teacher, or write, or do things that you want so that you can somehow balance those things out. But I just feel mm-hmm. that this kind of an ontological, our ground of being, um, oftentimes gets dictated by Again, the society, the culture, what, what's important to us. Uh, why is it that someone who's a medical doctor seems to get so much more uh, praise than somebody who's a, a superb plumber? Because, oh, they're a doctor. They save lives. Uh, you know, they, and that's absolutely true. 
But when the doctor goes down to his or her basement and the water's up to their knees, they're not going to call a doctor. Suddenly, the most important person in the world is the plumber. So, you know, it's mm-hmm. we get into these kind of, you know, divisions as in a hierarchy. Whereas, yes, okay, the doctor is, uh, she's helping people and, and health and all that. But guess what? The plumber is also helping people just in a different way. And uh, mm-hmm. I think if, if people kind of have more of that, again, going back to self-knowledge, what is it that's most important to me? What is my acorn? Yeah. How do I allow that to come forth? And maybe I don't have to do it for a job. Maybe I can do the accounting job mm-hmm. and it's fine. But it also the accounting job gives me the money to do the other thing. You know, maybe I, I yeah, want to stay yeah. home with the kids and maybe I can do more work at home and then I can be with whatever it is. You know, I, mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. honest, Dominic, I don't know how I got on this topic, but uh, I just felt like I, <laughs> I needed to say it. <laughs> you know what? Like I, I, I thought recently, like, it's it's uh, as I was telling you, you're this is only my sixth interview, so I'm very very new. I'm a quick learner though, but yeah. uh, and I was thinking to maybe to feel uh, a bit more at ease, uh, I should not rely too much on my uh, questions. And I thought of a lot of what you were saying about therapy and be, being creative, and that, that means being in the moment also. So. Um, I'm already learning from this experience because uh, I don't know exactly where I was. And I've asked you maybe four questions of, out of I don't know how many. <laughs> and we're already an hour in. <laughs> so it's all good. It's, the, it's that flow that we're looking for. And this is something I'm, uh, I'm, I'm learning about uh, podcasting. Uh, that said, uh, I, I want um, It's And it's not even in my questions. But I just want to point something out um, for people listening to this. Uh, not that I, I, I think I have something to teach people, but it's something that, that I realized was really important to me. This thing about self-knowledge, the importance of, of being totally honest with ourselves, with this, uh, with this notion is so important and it goes um because okay uh you gave you gave examples like oh uh being a doctor is better than being a plumber and things like that but we have those and and a, a lot of those um uh, uh ideas come from society or sometimes the 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 family nucleus but sometimes they come from ourselves too and My, uh, why I'm saying this is because some years ago, kind of recently, I put the uh, Dominic as a musician to rest. I still have my gear and I still love making music when there's music in the in these shows, it's always the music that I'm music that I made. But I've had I constructed this reality that I don't care if I'm poor it and I don't care if, uh, you know, like uh, I have to sacrifice everything to get there. So and it seems more noble, you know, for someone who's, you know, like uh, going against the grain and against, you know, like, uh, oh, I don't need money, you know. 
Uh, but I had to really, really struggle with that idea. Are you sure? Are you sh uh, again, uh, Byron Katie? Like she's a lot of, um, she's, uh, no, what, what is it that she's saying a lot? And uh, is that true yeah. in the work? Mm -hmm. Is it true that you want to be a musician? And I realized when I want to be a musician, I hate making music. It's not fun. I've never had fun. I've never been productive in music. I've never had had uh, a satisfying degree of um, interaction with the public. And, you know, like it's it's not for me. It took me 40 years to realize that, you know, so to question those ideas for for ourselves. It's so important mm -hmm. and I and sometimes we need someone to to put that mirror in our face. My my therapist has been uh, uh, very important in that process for me. Although we didn't address that specifically, but just I discovered with her in the uh, last few years. She's retired now. Uh, sorry, I'm going. I'm rambling a little. Okay. <laughs> That's when I'm excited. <laughs> um, she. Uh, helped me with this process of um, exploring oneself. And it, it, I, I don't know, like this is popping uh, just right now because you're you're uh, doing hyp hypnosis also, right? I don't know where I'm going with this, but let's go. Uh, me, it, what worked with me is me. I don't know how similar to uh, to it. To hypnosis it is but it was emi um oh i have it written uh it's not um uh, it's the movement eye, eye movement, movement uh, integration eye movement integration right. yeah mm -hmm. that was huge for me and it felt in many ways kind of even like magic or shamanistic in a way but you know to help me with that process of just Stepping out and seeing what's alive uh, in me, in my psyche, in my emotions, that was instrumental. I don't know if you've noticed people in your practice, like learning to uh, see themselves. <laughs> Where am I going with this? Maybe you have some things to say already. You're inspired with uh, yeah. well, hypnosis. Well, one thing, one thing I do, <laughs> I do want to uh, say, going back to the idea about you being a musician, um, the yeah. idea that that's who you needed to be for a while. I think sometimes we get so stuck on this idea that, that, that my identity has to be X. Oh, I've arrived. I've become a musician or a psychotherapist or an author or a doctor yeah. or a plumber, whatever, you know, and, and that we're supposed to always have that. So uh, the truth is I, I'm, I'm conjecturing here is that for a short period of time or a longer period of time, being a musician was necessary and it was important. And that's exactly what uh, you you were in a certain way. And so now time has changed. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're no longer a musician in the same way. But why is that generally looked on as in, oh, well, you're supposed to be this thing the whole time. I have never met anybody that interesting who has only done one thing. Most of the most interesting people have done multiple things. I've had tons of experiences, you know. I mean, 
maybe Mick Jagger's acorn is music and performing. So, I mean, he's 80 years old and still out there killing it every night. He's a phenom. Some of us don't want to be going. I mean, how many uh, great rock musicians from the 60s and 70s have retired just physically? They're tired or they just got burned down and look, I don't want to do this anymore. And there's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. So that acorn may felt like, you know, music for a while, but that also led you to certain other things that, and here we are today. So I just want to kind of comment that maybe you being an accountant is what someone needs to do for five to 10 or 15 or 20 years. And then one day to say, Mm -hmm. Oh, I shouldn't have done that is, is, is kind of denying reality. No, you probably absolutely needed to do that to learn things. And it's okay to do something different and not have your identity as is I'm an accountant or a musician. And so hypnosis, see how how I did that, brought it back around? Yeah. Hypnosis (laughs) is what we often do to ourselves. is in we hypnotize ourselves, thinking somehow that we're not changing. Yeah. And we get into Mm -hmm. a trance that we're supposed to always be the same. And I don't know about you, but uh, at my age now, when I look at the back of my head, there's less hair there. There's more gray here. I'm physically changing. Why would I not also emotionally change, mentally change? You know, mm-hmm. uh, I went through a time period where I thought I wanted to do a certain thing. And I, I invest a lot of time, effort, money, stress, work. And I'm proud of what I did. But I got to that point and I realized, hey, I'm here. I don't really want to do this. I don't really want to be that guy. And there's part mm-hmm. of me that got down about it, but there's other part of me is like, well, maybe I was supposed to be that guy till right now. And that every time I, again, goes back to the constructing of reality, I'm constructing a new version of me. You know, as, as our, our mutual friend, Jeff Mishlove says, always creating the best version of ourselves. And maybe that version of myself had to be built upon some of these challenges, some of these successes, some of these out and out failures and we get hypnotized into thinking that oh i I should be the way i was when i'm 25 35 45 55 as opposed to every day i'm this acorn opening up this dynamic interacting with my uh environment and i can create and do all kinds of things but i need to do things that are here's the self-knowledge that align with who i am my priorities and values so, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I totally get where you're coming from about, about the, the musician, but that served you up to now and it will continue to serve you, but in a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, I, well, I can already see how, how it's serving me now, by the way, like I, if I, uh, my experience as a musician, uh, helps me to do this right now <laughs> because, um, well, I also have a, a good ability to disability to step out and, uh, you know, for example, um, and I'm saying that not just to talk about myself, but because uh, sometimes it feels like my my um, my experience is kind of singular. My life experience yeah. is kind of weird. And I when I <laughs> look around, so I'm like, maybe I should suggest things, you know, and like for this uh, idea of um, uh, when you do something, you really have to put all in it and have success in, in mind, you know? It's really weird for me. In many ways, it works completely the opposite. And this is what I've learned in music. When I was doing shows um, in front of people, 
whenever I had an idea, oh, I'm going to try to reach them through this way or whatever, worst shows every time. And whenever I remember one particular show when we had trouble with the organizer and we didn't want to do it. And it was a, at a, a venue where a lot of uh, huge bands that I loved at the time, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, like they, ha they all had played there when they were uh, smaller bands. And me and my, my friend at the time uh, uh, in that band, we, we thought, you know, like we're, we're just going to do it just to say we've played there, you know. So we didn't care. We just, we were there for the music and for just us, actually. We didn't care about the, the audience. Best show ever. Like people came to us afterwards like, that was amazing, you know? So that's what I learned. I have not, to, I have to not care. And for some people, it's going to be the opposite. Right. They have to have a plan. That's how they're built. To me, it's that just, it works when I don't care. Right. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive. So, um, and it's all connected with this idea of meaning and, and nature. I love this acorn uh, mm. analogy, and I, I often use... Uh, plants and trees uh, when it comes to the mystic path and by the way i just remember because that, it's, it's i just remember the name of the book ahead. i think it's called the soul's code by james hillman where i got that metaphor from so if anyone's interested oh, that's okay. where i got it from cool it's gonna be oh by the way so f just so people know and you know uh there's gonna be show notes that are gonna be as detailed as possible so i'll find a link to that book it's gonna be in there mm -hmm. uh so yeah, I love that analogy, and it's it's all connected to meaning. And uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know of uh, Johan Harry, who's done a lot of work on de uh, depression. He was a like a pretty well known guy because of uh, TED Talk. I mm -hmm. think that was really popular. I think at one time he was on uh, the Joe Rogan show, mm -hmm. which is very big. So, and um, he connected uh, depression in society basically like on a larger scale you know to the lack of this crisis of meaning that we have the lack of meaning and um, uh, I wrote a little about that in, in my book and uh, do you know that that experience of uh, the rat park experience Bruce Bruce Ale Bruce K Alexander because you know like the we have this uh, I don't know, even know exactly where it comes from, but you know those rats that would uh, uh, have morphine water and they would just drink and just mm -hmm. basically get stoned until they die. Right. Um, and they would choose the morphine rather than the normal water. But uh, not to go too long on it, but uh, the rat park experience. It's, uh, Bruce K. Alexander, was. It's he's a Canadian... Uh, scientist um and the experience was well it doesn't really make sense to put the rats in such us austere uh, environments for sure they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna choose the morphine just as we choose the you know the entertainment and we prefer netflix to self-knowledge basically you know and he re redid the uh, experiment but with um uh, rat parks where they had everything to be happy mm -hmm. and for sure like they didn't choose the drug uh, water as much as the 
they did so sometimes for fun apparently mm-hmm. uh but uh yeah so yeah that idea of meaning it's so mysterious and it's hard to grasp do you have an uh like a conception of meaning you're working with a model of meaning well uh, i think it goes back to the idea of the constructed reality because things matter and mean to us what we intellectually lock on to a lot of times what we somatically feel uh you hear a lot of times people say that just feels right to me even if mm-hmm. logically maybe it didn't make sense but they follow that the path and then it Sometimes works out, sometimes doesn't. But yet that idea that that there's an intuitive, unconscious gut feeling. And so what's meaningful to you is going to be different from me and from anyone else. Um, in In a clinical setting, it's more important to me to understand what's meaningful to the client and also how they created that as being meaningful. So if somebody mm. says uh, having a lot of money is very meaningful to me because it gives me power and you delve a little deeper and it's basically it helps me feel less afraid. So really what's yeah. driving them is not the, the meaning of the money. It's the meaning to feel less afraid, to feel brave or, or you know, some, some things like that. So as far as a societal meaning, I mean, uh, it. We, we have changed so much. And again, this goes back to my comment earlier, things changing so quickly. I mean, um, in my father's uh, time period, I mean, most men went into the military for two to four years. I mean, that was you're conscripted into the military. And now, thankfully, that's you know not the case. But what it gave men in some ways is a structure and a kind of a rite of passage. And I see a lot of what mm-hmm. we're trying to do as a culture, particularly younger people who I've actually, even though I get frustrated being the older guy with a lot of the younger people, I mean, that's a stereotypical thing. I actually have a lot of empathy because things are changing. They don't have a sol- solid foundation to figure out what's meaningful and what's not. You know, part of throwing mm-hmm. away the old system to create something better is that you have to really know what the old system is really got to get in and look at it. It's like the whole baby in the yeah. bathwater uh, uh, kind of thing. And because we don't have those uh, rites of passage like we used to, we don't have a lot of the rituals uh, culturally that, that uh, you know, maybe some indigenous cultures have a sense of, of mm-hmm. community. I mean, crying out loud, we all live. I mean, I live in a great neighborhood. I don't know my neighbor's. I mean, actually, I do, but, you know, say hi and all. But I don't know much about them. They don't know much about me. It's not that I dislike people. Mm-hmm. It's just we, we all, as a culture, tend to have done this, even though things like this, uh, you know, Internet, all we, you think we'd be closer. But the, the truth of the yeah. matter is we're getting uh, less connected, and less connection requires people to go inside and, and desperately try to find an individual meaning without a collective meaning. So these two, it's like a Venn diagram, you know, that the collective world yeah. and then the individual. Now, I'm not saying there's one specific way for everybody because I just I don't believe that. But uh, mm-hmm. if, if we want to have a meaning in our life, it, we, we have to create some of it. If we don't feel like we can create a meaning that's important to us, we will oftentimes jump to different groups 
that give us a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning. I mean, now we got the far left, the far right, all these, you know, people who, who just feel lost in the world, particularly young people, and they're jumping ship to go into some of these groups, religious groups, uh, cultural groups, all of that, and, and to try to find some meaning. And then you create an identity based around this collective idea. And then when someone comes along and challenges it, then you get upset because, you know, you're not just saying what I what I have been doing is incorrect. You're saying that I'm as a human being incorrect because my identity is based on all these exterior uh, uh, organizations or groups or ideals that maybe didn't really give me that that sense of meaning. But I really wanted the sense of of, uh, connection. So it's, it's a hard question to answer. Because I personally don't think all of our depression is caused by a lack of meaning, but I think a good chunk of it may indeed be. Uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, when we don't have that, we, we all feel lost. I mean, Viktor Frankl did a whole type of psychotherapy, logotherapy, about helping people find meaning. Because when he felt that people, based on his experiences in the concentration camps uh, in Auschwitz III in uh, World War II, he felt that people who didn't have meaning tended to die earlier, almost like give up. But the people who had a, a more mm. important long-term vision, a meaningful vision for themselves, tend to hold on longer. So it, it is it's definitely, uh, I think, an element of truth there. But then each person, I believe, each person's meaning is going to be slightly different. And this is uh, one thing I want to point out. It is essential in our world for people to have different meanings to have different viewpoints. Because if you look at things kind of from a Taoist perspective, which I kind of lean toward sometimes, that's your yin and yang. Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a far right, you got to have a far left. Yeah. And you got to have somebody in the middle because that tears our, our balance. At the same time, if you have a really great idea, there's going to be somebody come along and thinks it's a dumb idea. And if you got a really dumb mm-hmm. idea, eventually somebody's going to run to you and say, hey, that's a great idea. And our mm-hmm. inability to see how all... Uh, factions kind of work together to create a whole keeps us separated and in this constant struggle trying to convince side a to be more like side b but side b absolutely has to have side a in order to exist and so that's why we pull our hair out we we feel like you know what's wrong with these people it's like you have to have Mm -hmm. Groups that you disagree with, you have to have groups, uh, family members that drive you nuts. You know, at the same time, you have people that you do yeah. agree with, family members that are supportive, jobs that are great, jobs that are horrible. Because if we're making the distinction in order to say reality is a certain way, we have to say what it's also not. We can't have something mm-hmm. without not experiencing the opposite. It's like these clients I get who come in and tell me they've never been happy. I'm like, come on, that's you know, that's not true. Because how would you? No, you're not happy unless you've experienced happy to know you're not. Maybe this is as good as it gets. I don't, you know, I don't know. But that 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 kind of that uh, unbalanced perception of our world oftentimes stand in the way of us creating the meanings that we may need to enjoy our lives, to be successful in our own ways, in them in a manner that helps. Like I said, going back to the acorn to that to emerge. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I love it. I love it, Paul. That's so good. Uh, listen, we have to wrap up. Uh, we're getting close to. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's a it's a great place to stop. I mean, I mean, you, I've, I've shared with you a little of where I, I was trying to take things. And you know that there's uh, 
uh, more paranormal things that I, I was curious to talk with you about. We, we didn't get into that. And that's quite OK, because I think it was a uh, it was important uh, what we talked about today. It's very central to the um, even if I, I try to keep my channels feel towards uh, the mystical path, um, we often forget the psychological uh, aspects of that. And um, that was great. That was great, Paul. I'm good. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, all right. So uh, nine books so far. Uh, is there something you're working on now? Actually, uh, no, for once, I'm not working on a book. And uh, <laughs> I, I probably I, I wrote nine books in nine years. And I figure this 10th year, I just need to take a break. Wow. And uh, so uh, I, we'll see. You know, I say that and then, you know, next month I'm, I'm back at it. But uh, as of now, nothing, <laughs> nothing going on. If people are interested in my books, um, you know, feel free to go to my website, which is uh, www drpaulleslie.com that's d-r-p-a-u-l-l-e-s-l-i-e.com has my books there uh, information on trainings I do I do a lot of uh, uh, trainings for uh, mental health professionals and sometimes uh, coaching and things like that for folks outside mental health and uh, but uh, yeah the the, uh, the book writing bug I think we're, we're taking a little break and kind of reassessing but uh, I'm proud of some of the books uh, I've written and uh, if somebody um find some value in them i'm always uh, very very pleased great if you if you're up for it uh maybe we can get into some of these more specifically one day uh i'd sure love to have you uh on back, uh, back on again oh thank you so much i love it great well thanks again paul dr paul g leslie people Check him out. Check. Uh, you can do a little search on YouTube. Also, a lot of interviews. Very interesting with Paul. Uh, check it out. And thank you uh, once again for being there. And thanks for everyone for listening. I hope that you got as much light uh, as I did from it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. So you've made it to the end of this Hopscotch Chronicles podcast episode, and I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed doing it. And I thank you so much for your attention, and I hope you, uh, you're benefiting in a way or another from this conversation. So if you'd like to follow my work, whether on this podcast or my personal work, you can go to Twitter or X and follow me at domi underscore valet d-o-m-i underscore valet same username for uh, instagram if you prefer that platform you can also go to the official website for the podcast which is hopscotchchronicles.com and if you'd like to support the podcast as well as my personal work you can do so by subscribing to my patreon the address is patreon.com slash Dominique Valley, D-O-M-I-N-I-C Valley, V-A-L-L-E-E. There you'll find video and audio versions of the, uh, the episodes without any commercials, as well as special episodes on every Sunday 
where I take my Sunday afternoon tea with you guys. All right, thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep reaching for the light. Bye.